0: Hi, my name is Brian Holt. I'm a cellist, and this is Talking Blues.
1: Do you have any jokes that you want to share with us?
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, not that I can share. Um, <laughs> um, no, no, they all they all relate to. It. In the classical music world, it's always there's viola jokes. Why is um, that? I don't, I don't really know. The viola always has like, this weird role um, in in a string quartet. It, it always kind of has the middle ground, you know. You'll have the cello in a string quartet yeah. as sort of the bass instrument, and then the violins have all these melodies, and then the viola, I mean, viola is a beautiful instrument, but sometimes it just gets stuck in this role. Like for example, in uh, waltzes, they always have the offbeat, you know, you have the bum bump, and they just go bum bump, like that's all they do. <laughs> Actually, that that reminds me of a, a good a good joke. Um, no, it doesn't actually. I, I, I I'm not going to, I'm probably going to mess it up, but, uh, you know,
1: to be honest with you, I'm not sure if there will be many violists who will be listening to this.
0: Oh, definitely not. They're too busy. They, they have a ton of work, so <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're in, they're in high demand. Let's start with how you started on the cello.
0: How did I start on the cello? It's, it's a very interesting story. You know, a lot of kids, Oh, I saw someone on TV playing it and I, I wanted to, or they, you know, a lot of people these days say, "Oh, I saw Yo-Yo Ma," and and then the kids today are like, "I saw two cellos on YouTube." Right. But um, for me, I I only really got to music through school. I we would always have to sing in class, and in grade five, I was also like, we had a homeroom teacher who ran the recorder club, so I did a little bit of singing and recorder. And then when I hit grade six, is when we would get to pick, you know, strings or band. Uh, pick our instruments and I'm convinced that my mother called the school and told them not to give me the drums <laughs> because I really wanted to play the drums um, from a young age like I bang on pots and pans and there's because of have, any
1: particular drummer
0: no I just really liked I really like the rhythm and, right. I, and I have a lot of friends who are drummers I, I don't know I just I identify like with that kind of role like sort of that foundation, And that's kind of what the cello does somewhat in string quartets. It has a lot of the rhythmic right. material. Um, so instead of getting the drums, I picked the next most awkward instrument. I picked the double bass. And at the time, I was about four foot something. I don't know. I was super tiny and I got this giant instrument. And um, it's sort of in the middle of the year, probably sometime after winter break uh, I had to go to the bathroom in class and I don't know why I thought this was a good idea but I took the bass and I just sort of leaned it against the wall. Right. You know you're supposed to put it on its side so it doesn't tip over and I just leaned it against the wall not in a corner and it fell over and smashed and my teacher was furious with me and instead of kicking me out of the class which I don't know if she could even do that she just decided to give me the cello instead. <laughs>
1: As punishment.
0: Be- as, well, not really as punishment. Well, she could have given me the viola. But <laughs> <That's> um, <true. laughs> but she gave me the cello and and immediately uh, I was just sort of in love with it. It was so much easier to carry around. <laughs> and, and it's still, I mean, a lot of people love the cello because the sort of the range of it from the lowest C to its highest note, it, it perfectly mimics the range of the human voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, of course, people can sing. Lower, lower than that, but not the vast majority of us.
1: Do you remember why you picked the bass in the first place?
0: Uh, I wanted to be cool. Okay. I believe that was probably the, <laughs> you know, <no laughs> how one that work out. I was so cool. Um, <laughs> in the cello, it just made me even cooler. But it's funny because the cello, it in sort of the history of of music, kind of evolved from the bass, right. um, and sort of the bass family. And in fact, the name cello is actually just an abbreviation of the full name of the instrument which is violoncello which means small violone and a violone was a bass right back then that's the name
1: so you started relatively late yeah compared I started, to a lot of classical musicians
0: i would say so yeah
1: um but did you excel at it immediately
0: i i was able to do a lot of things by ear really fast and there's some amazing recordings like early, I think my first like recording that those, there was air quotes there um, was a piece by Breval from the Suzuki repertoire. And I had no idea how to read music really. So there's a whole section of it that I just play wrong and (laughs) it's just completely wrong. Um, And I only played the first half of it and I didn't play it with piano. So I I just kind of did things, just i just i just played i just had fun on the instrument
1: so you pretended like you were reading
0: i pretended like i knew what i was doing i was really good at pretending um but that that of course came to bite me in the ass immediately after that when i started getting a bit more serious about it um i i started taking lessons uh i guess about a year after i picked up the instrument
1: so we're talking grade seven yeah
0: grade i think maybe even just grade eight okay um and, and then I started learning all the theory and stuff. And, and I, I still have my old notebooks from my, my cello teacher. And, and we're still in, in contact today. But, you know, I, I love to do Boeing backwards. Like Boeing is kind of like almost like speech. Like right. you can go the wrong way, but it's a bit like, you know, when people think about how William Shatner speaks, it's like kind of or Christopher Walken. <laughs> and there's emphasis on weird, on right. weird. Uh, and so it becomes kind of jarring. Um, but you don't think about that when you're just kind of doing whatever um so yeah I, I had to kind of backtrack and learn a lot of a lot of uh the things I would have learned when I was younger when I was probably in high school right um, and that was somewhat embarrassing at times
1: so going back to what you said about um you had a good year right how did that like what does that mean that you could hear something and then automatically play it or
0: I wouldn't say automatically. I I could figure it out just by using my ear. Um and is but, that
1: something that's a learned gift or is that something you have?
0: I don't know. I I mean, I think I think it's learned. I don't people call it like perfect pitch and right. stuff like that. I don't I think it I don't think it's like this, you know, phenomenon that you're you're born with. I I mean, I I think I just picked it up unconsciously. I mean, my grandfather uh, was a barbershop singer and he, he taught himself piano and, and mouth organ and all this stuff. And so I was sort of surrounded by that, you know, anytime I would go to visit him and he'd kind of let me play things on the piano or his organ. And, and I don't know, I feel like maybe somewhere in those experiences, like I, I picked it up um, because, you know, he'd, he'd kind of done that work. He never took lessons or, or any of that stuff. Um, And my parents would always just play classical music around the house. They still do, except when I go home, I turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) It's like work.
1: And you said that at one point when you got more serious about music, and what did that mean?
0: Well, I I realized that I wasn't going to be an NHL hockey player. So I I had to kind of figure out where I was going in life. Um, I... Originally, really wanted to go to sort of my home high school, which was Etobicoke Collegiate, because they had a hockey team and the football team and and all that you know right. high schooly goodness. But then in grade eight, I guess through taking lessons, um, I became really interested in the Etobicoke School of the Arts, and and it actually was a huge turning point for me going to that school because I I'd, I'd kind of felt out of place at my middle school. Um, uh, I don't know, a lot of kids were really good at sports and stuff like that, and I was sort of the music kid. Right. Like, you know, with singing in the choir. I had a very good homeroom teacher for grades 7 and 8 who had actually done a music degree in, in vocal performance um, as well. So I, I was sort of like the kid who just did the music stuff. And, and when I got to the high school, that was a lot less weird right. uh, because I was surrounded by all these teenagers who were just like super into what they did in and, either dance or drama. It was just fascinating.
1: And did you know that you wanted to seriously pursue music at that point already?
0: I think so. I mean, uh, just before going into high school, I was also a legislative page at Queen's Park. And I I had a lot of interest in kind of how politics worked. And, and I guess after that experience of, of working at Queens park, that sort of turned me off. Um, like it was crazy. Like I used to have to memorize the entire seating plan of, of the legislature and and we'd have these tests on, you know, who's in what riding and and knowing kind of how government works and like physically having to pass bills and, and notes between members. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't take a lot of, it wasn't very pleasing to do that. Right. Um, or, or really, I didn't really get the process. Um, funny enough, my brother also was a page a few years later, and is now a lawyer. So he, I guess, it worked a little bit better for him.
1: Um, <laughs> it's funny how things work. It's out. funny how, the,
0: yeah, and he's totally suited for it. Um, so I, th- yeah, probably right, right around the time of entering high school, it was, it was becoming more and more serious. Pro- I, I would say when I switched cello teachers, about mid high school. There was a year where I actually didn't have a teacher because I don't know what I... I, I was still like trying to trying to do the hockey thing a little bit. Right. Um, I played on the worst team in the Greater Toronto Hockey League. <laughs> we never won a game and we would lose games like 20 to nothing. Uh, so that, that definitely ended my hockey career when I was 15. But uh, yeah, so probably when I was 16, I switched teachers and that sort of solidified that I was going into music.
1: And going into music, I know you said you played the guitar, but this was going into music as a cellist. Yes. And what did you imagine that to be? Was it to <laughs> be in an orchestra or to be a soloist? or?
0: I mean, I don't think I ever had a specific vision. My my mother would always say to me, it's better to be a generalist than a specialist. Right. And and that's kind of the approach that I still take today. Um, so I, I never liked to put all my eggs in one basket I suppose
1: because automatically you would think okay my options are to be in an orchestra which you did actually play a season at the Thunder Bay Orchestra yeah, right? That's right um yeah. and you also play with the Toronto Symphony every so often is that correct
0: yeah no I sub I sub in in a few of the the orchestras in town yes
1: so was there a reason why you wouldn't have pursued that or just just the idea of that or keeping your options open and
0: well yeah I mean I I I sort of swing for the fences all the time um, and right now it's, it's kind of learning how to manage my expectations um, which yeah has been a bit of a, an issue for me but no I'm still I still do auditions for orchestras I mean I think there's nothing quite like playing in an orchestra it's, it's this sort of experience that uh, I had a student who's he's in his 70s now and he just This year, played in an orchestra for the first time in his life. Wow! And he had a blast. Like he, you know, he he just couldn't describe how it how it felt to him. Like it's just like being in this. Like listening to an orchestra is one thing, but being part of the organism is a totally different experience. It's like riding a wave.
1: Yeah, like it's 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 amazing how powerful it is. With my limited experience, and I don't play an instrument, but I have been on stage with an orchestra. Um, when we were shooting some video, right, and the, the power of the orchestra and to actually be in the middle of a section and to feel that is like nothing else, yeah, like it's crazy.
0: Yeah, they've got to figure out a way for more people to, to be able to do that. I
1: <laughs> no, I think I, you're right, I think it'd be really cool. I mean, there's a lot of
0: pieces being written now where the orchestra will be dispersed, you know, um, around the hall, and I, I think that's always a very, uh, very cool effect,
1: but so. If you were, and I don't know the circumstances, you're playing with the Thunder Bay Orchestra or Symphony Orchestra. Um, was that just something you wanted to try for a year, or did you think that that's the route that you wanted to go? And
0: um, I mean, it was right after I finished my master's degree. Uh, I have a few colleagues who are in that orchestra, and one of my friends was taking a sabbatical, a uh, longtime friend. Actually, his, his grandmother was my grandmother's maid of honor, and then we didn't meet until. University. But anyways, that's, wow. that's neither here nor there. <laughs> We're like long lost brothers. Yes. Um, But he was taking a sabbatical. And so there was this opportunity to go there for a year, possibly more. And, you know, I just finished school, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. So I, I flew down there and did, did the audition. And I was successful. And, uh, and it was it was a great, uh, great year there. I mean, I think it, it sort of helped put the next few years into perspective. Like, I I learned a lot about orchestral playing, and I don't think any of the experiences I have now with with many orchestras in town would have been possible without having learned from that experience.
1: Um, How, I don't know if you can easily explain what that difference is, but from a person who's playing, like, how how different was it, and what did you learn from that experience of playing in an orchestra?
0: Well, I mean... um, different i mean oh yeah this is a tricky question i mean orchestral playing is (laughs) definitely uh,
1: you're also talking to somebody who's not musical at all
0: well no but i mean even for myself uh, how to best put it into words
1: like was there a Uh, moment we thought wow i just learned something that i never knew
0: oh all the time i mean i i had a stand partner there who had been in the orchestra from before i was born and so he he was sometimes brutally honest (laughs) but you know, just sort of showing me the ropes of like how... Like a lot of it's to do with, with etiquette because, you know, when you're in an orchestra, unlike a string quartet, like not everyone can have a voice and like interrupt the person and say, maybe we can try this. Like it's all it's all done through very um, predetermined channels, like the principal players. Right, like there's a hierarchy in, yeah. in the orchestra. Yeah, and things like bowings like Boeing, and stuff like that, like where they have to match to sections. I mean, I'd had some experience before that obviously in right. orchestras like I'd i been in the National Youth Orchestra of Canada uh, for I think I'd done it three times and and sort of little things here or there um, but I guess spending a much more prolonged period of time doing just the one mostly just the one thing kind of just taught me a bit more about that that life.
1: Was it a life that you would have chosen to pursue had the opportunities... I is mean, it, I'm still pursuing okay. it. I mean, so I, it's something that what, you would still consider.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the auditions, are they don't pop up all the time. But when, when the right ones do, I I try and make the time to, to do them.
1: And if you got it, what kind of commitment would that be? I guess it depends on the orchestra it depends that you join. On the orchestra, yeah. But is it pretty well a full-time job and you couldn't do anything else? Or would you, would you be able to pursue some of the solo projects you're doing?
0: I mean, at first I would say it would be... Purely a full-time job. I, I mean, I have a lot of friends who have just won jobs, and sort of the first couple of years that they're in the job, because you have to get tenure as right, well. Right. Um, they try and focus on the job, um, but I know that many of the the players in the symphony, like they, they do tons of other things. A lot of them teach right. as well, but you know, other various projects, ensembles. I believe in the the TSO. There's even a, I think. Joe Johnson and Teresa Rudolph, and I think Shane Kim. And then there's one other member from another orchestra. They have a string quartet uh, that does shows occasionally. And, and Jeffrey Beecher, uh, the principal bass from the Toronto Symphony, he's, he's with the Silk Road Ensemble as well. So they take the time off and they right. are able to do a bit of both.
1: So once you finish that year um, with the orchestra, what what did you think you were going to do next
0: well when i was there i did i took uh, an audition for the winnipeg symphony and i didn't get that and then i i turned my attention to returning to toronto uh because that's where i'm from and that's where i wanted to sort of set up my roots i really like the music scene here and so that that turned my attention to okay how, like, how am i going to survive when i first get there and I had some interests in, in doing some research. And so I applied to do a, a doctorate at the University of Toronto, which is where I completed my undergrad studies. And that, that proved to be sort of the perfect little um, springboard for a lot of, a lot of things. Um, you know, having the security of having some funding mm-hmm. um, and having a bit of work through the school as well. I, I worked as a, a teaching assistant. To one of my former teachers, and and that led to a number of opportunities, including I, I did some conducting this year. Wow! I, I actually conducted a concert, which is not something I'm trained to do. <laughs> but you just kind of figure it out. And
1: um, would you want to do more?
0: Sure. I mean, but I'd conducting, love to, but I need you... to learn more first, though. Right. right. Okay.
1: And and for. For those who don't know what conducting means, I mean, it's not just you stand up in front of the orchestra and wave your arms. Yeah. Tell me what it involves to become a conductor.
0: Oh, I wouldn't know what it what it takes to become an actual conductor, but the best way I can describe a conductor's role is is like they're a traffic cop. Um, you know, they have to, but they and they have to know exactly what's going on in the music, so that if there's any sort of deviation from that, they're able to fix it, right. like right in the moment. So it's trying to keep all these people on track um keep them at the same tempo you know showing things physically so that you can have people play louder or softer Uh, in some ways yeah you have to be a bit of a mime that way you have to really show what's happening in the the music it's kind of it's kind of a weird dance that you're (laughs) you're doing up there
1: so how was the experience of conducting for you
0: i mean it's exhilarating i mean it's it's kind of the same thing we're just talking about being inside of the orchestra is being right in front of it right and um, controlling it and controlling it yeah it's a bit like driving a really nice race car um and the, and the students were all were all fantastic um really really eager students it's a string orchestra at the faculty of music that's sort of the spillover from the the main orchestra because there's too many string players in the school but we had some some really fantastic players just because of Um, they had scheduling conflicts with the main orchestra. And so this year we were, we had our best orchestra of the five years that I was at U of T and we did some really cool
1: stuff. Wow. And and the other thing you do is teach. Yes. Tell me about that and how that happened.
0: I mean, I I first started teaching when I was, I think, 16. Yeah, again, in high school, I had like one student who was a a friend's sister. Um, And that's how it sort of started. And then it was, it was sort of, figuring it out for many years i think now yeah now i've been doing it about 16 years and uh and kind of i i would say i got much better at it during my doctorate because my studies sort of forced me into learning a lot more about the cello and its history and how it was taught and the various methods um so i i've i learned much better in the last five years how a cello really works Again, I'm still. I still feel like I'm constantly learning backwards. Right.
1: I mean, I, I I think most musicians who are very serious about their craft will say that it's it's a lifelong endeavor and it's this journey that they take. Nobody says, "Yeah, I got it figured out."
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've I've basically just taught privately. Um, I did a little bit of teaching, you know, through various. Uh, music schools but I've, I've done most of it just on my own because I, I like to have the flexibility uh, with, with the various projects that I'm doing and I have a wide really wide range of students like in terms of age I think my youngest students uh, about 11 and then my oldest students in his 70s yeah. and, and there's kind of everything in between uh, Wow it's, and it's I, really I presume fascinating. And
1: your teaching method is different for every student
0: Definitely, um, I mean there's sort of some general building blocks that I always like to start with regardless of age or ability because there's certain principles that have been passed to me uh, from my teacher like for example when I started my master's degree I think the entire first term I didn't actually really play a note I was just doing a, a note with my left hand like I would just play open strings because my teacher had a very specific way of of using the bow and and that's really our you know the left hand doesn't make any sound. Right, it's just pre- it's just pushing the notes, and then you can, you can vibrate them. But, but actually, you know, knowing how to control your your tone is is uh, is something that sometimes gets overlooked. And for me, it was something that had been overlooked for a really long time. So again, I felt like I was relearning uh, in my, and I'd been playing the instrument for you know over ten, fifteen years. I don't know.
1: And I guess people might not appreciate how important bowing is
0: yeah it's it's crazy it, it's <laughs> i mean it's sort of like breathing um you have two directions of bow right. uh, down bow which is sort of pulling it away pushing it away and the up bow which is pulling it uh pushing it in so pulling pulling the bow outwards and pushing it back in and that's that's a bit like our lungs it's sort of inhaling exhaling right. so that that dual feel and and uh, that's what I was talking about earlier. Is when I was younger, I I didn't know which way it didn't really matter to me which way, and so that created for very interesting sort of sentence structure in my playing. You, <laughs> right. You're putting a lot of emphasis on the wrong syllable.
1: <laughs> Silly question, but yeah. do you have a favorite? A favorite bow. In, inhale or exhale? Oh. Like, well, there... dambo
0: is 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 typically the stronger of the two. That's that's our exhale, right? right? So, um. Everyone loves a good, just sort of, you know, that sort of feel. So typically if you have a piece, like a big concerto, and it starts with a big loud note, it's going to start on a down bow. So okay, but I'd say down bows is pretty fantastic. Very recently
1: <laughs> I was editing a piece uh, and somebody was playing the violin and they were doing rehearsals. And I noticed that in, in this one particular part where they did the same notes twice, um the violinist was playing it differently so i had to basically match the two cuts mm-hmm. and i couldn't because on one end it was a down bow on that same note on the next take it was an up boat i don't yeah, know if that, it's tricky is yeah, that i mean yeah is that allowed
0: <laughs> oh it's all allowed i mean but it you know, it's me. just it's like, like speech there's no like ex- there's no one way of saying something um
1: but is that unusual that you would do a you would rehearse a piece and then play the six notes differently, like the opposite bowing. I mean, it
0: happens. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it just happens, you know, um, that's kind of what I mean a bit about orchestral bowing is it's like, you're trying exactly to copy it. Right. Um, so that there's the uniformity of sound. I mean, sometimes you don't, sometimes there'll be passages where the principal just say free bow so that it sounds really long and, and everyone, there's no real stoppage to the note. But in solo playing or chamber music playing, it, it, some of it becomes a lot more instinctual, and it kind of just happens because you're not trying so hard to to coordinate with everyone else in terms of direction. Right. Okay. You might there might be specific moments where that needs to happen, uh, say where you're all playing the same tune. Like if you're all playing a, a melody in unison, um, like the opening of Eine Nacht music and bam, bumpy, bumpy. Like there's really only one way to play right. that. But But um, yeah, it, it it can just happen where you just go go another direction.
1: Interesting, know? but and but you can tech in some parts. You can technically have the same sound either going up or down.
0: I mean, yeah. You, I mean, you should always have that ability. Right. Um, it's not that the sound really. You, I mean, if you listen to a recording, it's tough to be like, "Oh, that's a down bow." Yeah. You yeah. know. It, <laughs> you know. Um, you can you can speculate, but I, I think it would be really hard to. It's it's more just sort of the flow. That's that's created by the, the changes.
1: Right. Um, so you talked about tone, um, in 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 other genres that I've talked to musicians about. I mean, oftentimes people say musicians are always striving to get their own tone, that own sound. So that in the blues, if you listen to BB King play, you just know who he is by that one yeah. note. Is it like is it like that for you? And then. If if so, have you reached the point where you know what your sound is?
0: No, I I mean I I think I'm still experimenting all the time. I have. It, it also depends what I'm doing. Um, right. Like again, like an orchestral tone is you're trying to blend and match right. what's around you. Whereas if I'm playing as a soloist, yeah, I'm trying to to do my own thing. But what what is that? I don't I don't fully know. I mean, um, I've experimented a lot in recording myself, trying to figure out what I want to do like it's, it's not just the bow too; it's also sort of the the vibrating in the left hand right um finding the right mix of that
1: but if you listen if you listen to yo-yo ma can right. you say oh that's yo-yo ma as opposed to somebody else
0: with some with some cellists yeah it's very it's very obvious um uh I can't think like uh one one person who sticks out to me right now is like Gautier Capuçon the, the French cellist like I can I can cut, and I really love his playing he's phenomenal um, but you can you can really tell his playing from a lot of others it's also sort of the the various geographical um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for like you can tell various schools of playing like oh, okay you know like you can tell sometimes you used to be able to tell like a Russian player from an American player like there's sort of like these um, various global schools of playing which is becoming less of a thing now with with the internet and and all that, like everyone.
1: So you think it's because of the internet that it's less regional?
0: I mean, I was talking to to a professor in Copenhagen a few months ago, and he, he thinks so, like he was talking about, uh, this program that they were running at the Royal Danish Academy, um, which was all about global audition training. And he was saying that, you know, they would have panelists from like Shanghai or, or Vienna and and someone in the States, and they would all listen to these students and, and they would all sound much more similar because you're just trying to find this one one way of playing these excerpts whereas when he was a, a student it's like he said you know you could hear three notes and you'd know exactly where that person was from wow you'd be like that's a russian player you know stuff like that
1: that's crazy
0: yeah so i mean it i think it's tough because nowadays it we're just kind of everywhere you know as as musicians we're not I feel like a lot of classical musicians we're, were finding our way into a lot of other genres and things like that. So our, our, we don't have sort of that one sound.
1: Right. So, okay. The other thing you mentioned was you thought it would be better to be a general, generalist, which meant that you would pursue orchestral work. You, I know that when I first met you, you were in a piano trio. That's right. Um, you have a cello duo. So how did you, I, and you also competed as a soloist. A little bit, yes. Yeah. So how did you decide? Is it you decide or you just think, okay, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to do everything possible.
0: Uh, I guess.
1: <laughs> um, like, did you ever decide, did you ever think I want to be pursue the, the, the route of being a soloist? Or did you ever think I want to join a string quartet?
0: Or I, I mean, these have all been thoughts. Um, at this point, I know I won't become a soloist. I, I don't have the... Um, the age or the pedigree or the stamina. like it, it, it's, it's almost impossible to be a soloist these days. Um,
1: but the pressures are also ridiculous too, right? To be a soloist.
0: I, oh, I think so. I mean, again, like a lot of the people in symphony, especially the principal players, they will still do solo engagements. It's, it's something that they do more on the side. I, I think it's extremely difficult to just do that. Right. Um, and you see a lot of soloists now, they also are very active in chamber music. I don't, there's very few people on this planet, I think, still that just play concertos with orchestras. I don't think that's really doable. Um, I don't know if that was ever really a thing. I think you always have to have various little things like for soloists chamber music kind of becomes their their other thing, Um, like they would never then go and play section in an orchestra.
1: So when did you know after your year of being in the orchestra, that you need to do different things, and you need to constantly do different things. Was it just out of necessity that you would be in this group, and you would play this, and you would also re- audition um, for that, or?
0: I don't know. It, it's kind of always been a thing with all of my teachers. I've always sort of seen that what they do, and and they all sort of did a variety of things. Especially, sort of my last two teachers. They were both they're both soloists, um, but they also do a large variety of of chamber music activities and actually with my teacher at McGill, like I got to play a lot of chamber music with him. Like, uh, he sort of took us under a lot of, a few of his students, he took us under his wing and we formed this group called Ucello, cello, mm-hmm. which is a, a cello octet. And we did crazy things. Like we did a bunch of jazz, like we do like Mingus and, and stuff like that on, on eight cellos. Uh, and then we also recorded this whole other, uh, sort of musical storybook, project and that took us around the united states but just sort of seeing how he how he worked and and how he went about like he he puts out about two records a year really? currently and and tours and teaches and you know he just it just shows like how you have to you have to do everything you, there's no there's no really like waiting sitting and waiting for the phone to ring right you have to go out and find find the work and which, whatever which makes it, whatever sense. it is yeah, yeah i mean yeah of course it all it all makes sense but i mean that just sort of just seeing how how he worked really sort of pushed me to to find more more things to do and and do you have a
1: preference of like is there something you like to do more than other things
0: currently uh, i mean i really i really like playing with my cello duo because Mm -hmm. it's it's very personal it's uh we play a lot of music that is not really heard that often. There are very few cello duos in the world. I mean, of course, there's the two cellos.
1: I mean, does that have a lot to do with it or not?
0: Uh, that's that has something to do with how we started, because we were hired for a corporate event about four years ago, and they wanted two cellos impersonation.
1: So, okay. And somebody says, well, we want two cellos. Can you do it? Can you do it? And you say, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
0: then we, you know, I borrowed you know they use those carbon fiber cellos, and and my my colleague Amal, he owns one, and I borrowed one from somebody. And and the company who hired us, they were like, oh, we want your bows to shred, and we're like, okay, well, give us like you got to buy us some crappy bows. And so and why why do they want that? Because it looks cool. It's completely impractical, but that's that's the, I guess the showmanship of it. You know, people, but they, they... people who you know they think it's very that's a very intense looking thing right you're right. playing and then all these bow hairs ripping and the rosal but then as your bow hair's ripping you're making less sound right it just looks really cool i mean it's it's like i don't know how to compare it to some guitar i mean it's like kind of like that arm flinging thing some guitarists yeah, yeah. do like the i can't remember what that's called like sort of wind the windmill yeah yeah like it, it's completely it's it's just all about the showmanship of the moment that's not <laughs> really going to help with your sound
1: I don't think. Right. Okay. So the other thing that I know, I think I know is that bows are not cheap.
0: Yeah. I mean, these were like like student bows. (laughs) These were actually had a friend who worked at the, at Long McQuaid at the time. And so these were ones that had been previously broken. And so they sit in, in like a, a plastic tube in my house and they're just, they're completely useless at this point. Like they, they had their one purpose and they're, they're done. I think they cost about maybe 50 bucks each.
1: Okay, so yeah. for people who don't know, what what's the range of cost for a decent bow?
0: Uh, oh, I don't know. I'm the wrong person to ask about gear, but uh, <laughs> there's...
1: Like I we're mean, talking thousands, Yeah, right? thousands. Yeah,
0: they're, they're $1,000 sticks, basically. Um, and, and the that? upkeep of them is, is a bit tricky. Uh, a lot of people think you have to swap out the bow every time you lose a hair, but you actually just put in new hair into the bow. You just get your bow rehaired. right? Um, so you don't have to get a new stick every time. But, um, I mean, my earliest bow was, you know, just under uh, under a thousand dollars, and and now you have a couple bows that are made by a Canadian maker, which are are expensive, but not they're not on the crazy expensive. But side. But
1: do you know, like, I presume, like a good instrument? As soon as you use it, you know that yeah we, we say it's like it? it's like butter
0: you know it just it just goes it does exactly and 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 what you're looking for in a good bow is is sort of equal weight distribution like when you're you're using the, you know when you're you're putting it on the string and and pulling it right. that it's it, it's working evenly you want to check if it's going to bounce um you sort of just check all these prop you sort of have like a checklist of how you want it to feel right shredding's not one
1: of them Sorry? Shredding's not one of them.
0: Uh, well, yeah, sometimes like a really fast spiccato, like a sort of really fast bounce sh- stroke. Not really shredding, no. <laughs> I, I think if you did that at a shop, they'd probably ask you to leave. Um, it's a bit like if you were to play Stairway to Heaven at a guitar shop. I think they'd just ask you to get out.
1: OK, so you, you were asked about doing a cello duo, and then you approached them all and said, can you do this? Yeah. Can we do this? And then, So how, what's, what's the repertoire?
0: Well, I mean, for that event, it was you know Michael Jackson and and Guns N' Roses, and and we we're like, well, that was that was fun, and we did for about a year. We did a number of events like that, and and I at the time was sort of entering, guess like, the middle of my doctorate at that point, and I started reading more about you know about the great cellists over time and and how they taught and and a big. Uh, facet of that was the cello duo like it was sort of you would play with your teacher and and that's how you would learn and so there was a lot of back and forth in in that writing you know it wasn't like one person just played all the hard stuff and then one person did the bass line I mean that happens sometimes but um so it was that that was really interesting to me and then we there's a a website that sort of has all the public domain sheet music that's that's out there and so we started exploring that exploring the University of Toronto library scouring the internet seeing what other music is available for cello duo and we we came across a lot of it um, ranging you know from classical to there's some bluegrass stuff there's, there's some stuff that just came out recently which is there's a lot of jazz and uh, there's a lot of really phenomenal multi genre cellists out there today that are that are writing amazing music and and then we started also commissioning uh, our own pieces we had a big project which is sort of coming to a conclusion now um that we've we've toured called beethoven's cellists which you know beethoven was this amazing composer who was who wrote um the five five cello sonatas which for us for cellists it's sort of like the box suites Mm -hmm. of the old testament and the the Beethoven cellist sonatas or the New Testament I think it was Stephen Esserliss who said that but uh, he you know in his lifetime was surrounded by all these great cellists like Anton Kraft and Jean-Louis Duport and, and Bernard Romberg and, and there were more even amateur cellists um, there was a piece he wrote for an amateur cellist to play with him called the eyeglass duo which was sort of a poke at the guy because he he needed to wear uh, large eyeglasses <laughs> in order to see the music and it's actually a piece that the guy would have performed with Beethoven. It was a, a duet for uh, cello and viola. So Be- Beethoven would have played viola, if you can believe it. <laughs> we all think of him as this pianist, but yeah, secretly, yeah. He, well, not really so secretly, but he was also a violist. And so that's, yeah, that's sort of why it's so personal, because it's it's this repertoire that feels like we found it. I mean, we didn't, but <laughs> it's that feeling of of discovering something new. There's no real recordings of a lot of this stuff or right. if there is, there's maybe one or two and uh, and just doing it kind of allows us to really do our own thing it's not like string quartet where there's sort of you know, the Beethoven string quartets have been recorded thousands of times and, and people are still doing really interesting things with that um, but it's just totally fresh
1: So that project resulted in you putting out a new album That's right um, of the same title, um, and it's you just finished it.
0: Just, just finished it. We just got a whole box of CDs and and download cards the other day. Now we have to figure out how to take that and put that on the internet because we're both secretly eighty years old and don't know how to use technology, <laughs> <laughs> even though we play with iPads and everyone assumes. You know, because we're of a certain generation that we understand computers, I have, I have no idea how to do it. Okay, well, I think we can resolve that. No, I don't yeah. think be that be it, It'll be fine. You know, I'll, I'll hire one of my parents' neighbors, like their <laughs> kids, and they'll tell me how to do it.
1: Do you have expectations for this recording?
0: I mean, definitely, we toured this program back in February of 2018 on the East Coast. It was a tour.
1: How did that happen?
0: It's a tour presented by DBU Atlantic. Okay. Um, And so, basically, what you do is you apply. um, Emerging artists apply to this sort of touring, I guess you could call them, uh, foundation, and they select. uh, I believe they select four to six artists per season to do these tours of the uh, Atlantic.
1: What what does that consist of? How many dates? How many?
0: Uh, We were out for two weeks, and and that consists of main stage shows as well as uh, we did some school shows as well. And then we also, at the end of our tour, did a live webcast concert uh, to a number of schools and uh, remote schools in Newfoundland as well and answered questions. And it was it was kind of an interesting experience.
1: So did you think that we should record this after the tour? Definitely. Yeah, because because that of that experience plan. and thought, okay, we need to record this and because one would think it would be nice to have the CDs when you go on tour.
0: Yeah, one. With, I mean, yeah, sometimes class, in classical music we're a little bit backwards because we, we want it to be perfect. We want to have played it, you know, oh, right, many, okay. many times over before we go into the studio. We really want to know it. Right. And, um, and but we are going to tour it again in the, I mean, constantly. I mean, we're even playing it tonight in Mississauga. But um, we're, we have another big tour of it coming up in the 2019-2020 series, which is through Prairie Debut, which is similar to Debut Atlantic in that they take, I think they only take three artists per, per season. And this is act this was actually our third time applying to it. We've been turned down twice and then we were like, we're going to try one more time.
1: And what was different this time? Was it because of the new collection of works or?
0: No, actually when we first applied to Prairie Debut, it was almost exactly the same program, except. None of the pieces had been written, <laughs> and a lot of what we proposed we hadn't played. Oh, okay. And so, debut Atlantic sort of took took us on our word. Um, I guess when we applied three years ago, and it, it turned out really great. But it as soon as we won that tour, we sort of panicked because we were like, okay, now we need to find money. <laughs> right. We need to commission all these guys, and we need to learn like two hours of music <laughs> that some of it that doesn't even exist yet. And so that was like a really it was a really long project. Um, I say that it's really only coming to its culmination now because we have the CDs. Right. Um, but but in we're in some still gonna, ways this is just a beginning. In in some ways, yeah. I mean, it's we're we're sort of seeking representation to to try and take it even more places. You know, outside of Canada. Um, I mean, we did play some of the repertoire when we were in Italy last summer. We were out there for the Soundscape Festival, which is a new music festival.
1: So how easy is it for a relatively new duo, a cello duo, and now you have your first album, to go out and get dates? Is that an easy thing? I mean, you, you described how you got...
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's easy, but one of the things it definitely is, is it's unique. Um, that's, that's I think, what people really enjoy about our concerts, is that it's stuff they've never heard before. Right. But And we love to... To talk a lot about the pieces when we're performing, we think that's just as important is, is providing context. And I think in classical music in general, that's becoming more of a thing. Um, it's not just like guy goes out on stage, holds up his violin, and then they just play a piece and you're just supposed to understand well, yeah. everything. Like, you know, you or you you come early and you read the program notes, but it's it's, you know, it's nice to have a personal attachment to it, you know, have a story. I mean for a lot of the pieces that we commissioned they were we actually commissioned cellists to write them and these are all cellists who we knew personally either we we studied with them or one of them I went to high school we went to high school together and we had the same teachers and kind of lost touch um, yeah I think I don't know if it's, it's easy for us to get um, gigs but people can definitely see sort of how attached to it we are so that that sort of works in our favor. We're not just a group that is like, all right, we're going to, we're going to play the uh, the stuff, you know, for, for piano trio. Like I saw some, some piano trio and they're just like, we play all of the piano trio repertoire. It's like, what does that even mean? I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, it's Good, interesting. That, what, that's cool. <laughs> were you were you happy
1: with the, the reaction you got from your tour out east?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, we loved playing out there. The, the audiences were fantastic and and we'd love to go back um they were sometimes you know when when we're playing in in Toronto like we love playing in our own city but sometimes the audience doesn't isn't as reactive because i don't know maybe they're overexposed yeah yeah it's not to, as special or whatever it's not as special but but when we're out there and you know it's they only get a few concerts uh, in their community per month you know whereas Toronto we probably have the same number of concerts in one night right um you know they they just really appreciate it, and uh, and and they were they're super engaged with what we were doing. You know they they laughed at our jokes. You know that's that's the main thing. Um, sometimes
1: they about we did a concert
0: at the Richard Bradshaw Amphitheater at the Four Seasons Center in Toronto, and, and I, it was like you know one of those moments where you make a joke that's like been received so well for you. <laughs> you know for for all those weeks touring and then you make it and it was just crickets really oh yeah not, well i think it was also the atmosphere i think well we were talking about this before we we started uh, the interview but uh, you know the atmosphere that you're playing in mm-hmm. like you know a house concert versus that that's like a very serious space yeah, that yeah, we yeah. were playing in and and so people don't find it as appropriate to maybe laugh they feel uncomfortable um because there's sort of this this uh, stigma attached to like a concert hall it's you know we right, right. have to be very proper in um, the applause you know there's no hooting and hollering <laughs> um, but you know you play play some places they, they just go nuts and 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 I think that's great I, I think, mean it's great the other way too
1: but yeah but I, I think what you mentioned about um, being more talkative and, and talking between the pieces. I think that's huge because somebody like myself who doesn't know a lot about classical music and the few times that have attended you know you don't clap in between movements and if you don't know like it's you, yeah you think so, you should applaud yeah. and it's weird and, that you don't
0: you it's funny because in cl- that used to be such a thing like people used to clap between movements all the time and then some somewhere over time we we got a little uptight really? <laughs> you know and people yeah there used to be like like fights at concerts and things like you know it was well, like yeah, it was like yeah. rock concerts yeah, right it a, like, yeah. i mean
1: that was the pop music of its day it was
0: the pop yeah exactly it was the pop music of its day and um it was actually interesting last night i i went to a concert at the lula lounge for mm-hmm. toronto summer music and it was the orford new orford string quartet doing doing some stuff and they had microphones and it was it was great it was just like a like a rock concert for classical music and the place was packed and I don't know and and it's just because of that environment people right. felt, i mean people were still very respectful while they were playing it was still quiet it was definitely an older crowd but uh in between stuff people went nuts it was great
1: you know the other probably misconception is that classical musicians have to dedicate a, a lot of their lives practicing these complicated pieces and and i i wonder often and it's probably more so when you're younger but I wonder what other kinds of music that you listen to, and I think you listen to a lot of different kinds of music. But is is, is your time listening in mainly classical music, or do you listen to a lot of different things? And what oh, else do you listen
0: to? Um, what else do I listen to? I mean, I uh, I've always really loved Radiohead. That's been my my big thing, and I finally got a chance to see them live like last, last week. week. Yeah, and, and it was life changing experience. Um, so I I listened to i'd say i listen to a lot of radiohead and sort of radiohead-esque things i guess um like nico i I really like nico muley he's kind of like on the cusp of classical music and and sort of that that world um i don't know i i think i have apple music and it's really quite interesting because it'll kind of just suggest things to listen to and and i for me Either I'm listening to music because I'm working on it, or I just like to get taken somewhere else. Right. You know, just just like uh, here, go go listen to this. But yeah, sort of my staple is definitely like if I if I had like one thing to go back to to listen to, it's it's usually Radiohead. Um, wow. And
1: I does that influence the musician like in what way does that influence the musician that you are, or does it? I
0: mean, Radiohead. Definitely has sort of carved their own path, and I, mm-hmm. I guess that that's always sort of been one of my one of my main things. Is is I I like to feel feel that way. Maybe I'm I'm not exactly doing that, but at least it's, it's sort of like an internal feeling of of not just doing what everyone wants. Right. I guess. And they've you know in in numerous as like they they do just do crazy stuff, and even live too. They they take what they. Have done, mm-hmm. and they don't just reproduce it. They they add new layers. They they play around with it. Like at the beginning of one, one I almost said piece. One of their songs. <laughs> um, <laughs> that always happens. At the beginning of this piece. Um, they just totally just took this one little bass riff and just played around with it for what felt like ten minutes. And it's something that in the album takes like two seconds. Right and and they just let's just let's just you know kind of it's like that thing for spinal tap it's like freeform jazz obviously (laughs) um okay so that brings up another question (laughs)
1: that when i whenever i speak to classical musicians i'm always curious about um classical musicians are very good at reading notes and executing them perfectly or close to perfection as possible (laughs) perfectly yeah um (laughs) and and or just reading notes and creating beautiful music but oftentimes they can't improvise Uh uh-huh can you improvise?
0: I can. I attempt to improvise. I mean, when I practice, the first thing I usually do is try and improvise because it's just sort of rearranging things. It's always funny because I'll just start doing that and someone will be like, oh, what piece is that? I'm like, I have no idea. I'm just, just playing notes. And it, it always kind of sounds pretty contemporary. It's not usually that beautiful. <laughs> but um, uh, recently uh, with the duo, we actually... Did a jazz jazz tune on on one of our concerts by Matt Brubeck, who's the son of Dave Brubeck, right. and he's a fantastic jazz cellist, and he wrote us one of those Beethoven pieces. But that that was sort of the first time that we've sort of started publicly improvising. So you he um,
1: had a written piece that you could follow, but at one point you go somewhere else.
0: Not even really; it's more just like a standard jazz chart. Like he he wrote we we studied it with him, so I mean that kind of helps. But the chart is very bare. It sort of has the first line of it is kind of the pattern that he wants you to do. It's sort of like a plucked bass line. Um, and then it does. Then he just has chord changes and you just kind of have to follow that sort of uh, motive and sort of apply it to those changes. And then he has just the simple melody. And then basically, I mean, in, in jazz terms, we... We sort of played through the head, and then Amal improvised over the bass line. Then I improvised over the bass line. And then I played the head out, and that was basically
1: uh, but the tune. That process of improvising is that easy for you to do? Uh,
0: in certain pieces, uh, I mean, we're not like jazz musicians. We're, they're they're incredible at transposing and and kind of just being able to do things in all keys. Um, it's something that I'm working on. It's it's something I work on in my practice, like through my my thesis, uh, which was on online cello instruction, I came across the Improviser's Guide to the Cello, which is a website run by Jacob Kelly, who's a fantastic jazz cellist out of L.A. And it kind of teaches you how to play jazz on the cello, which is sort of counterintuitive to how we learn the cello. Yeah, sure. It's in terms of classical music, uh, a lot of things like Schumann, like sort of romantic composers, it, it relies more on playing up and down the instrument. Where in jazz, especially with some of the speed, we have to play more across our instrument, a bit more like a guitarist. Hmm. Um, so just learning those sort of those new hand shapes, um, and sort of finger jams and little little things that we wouldn't have learned in classical music. That's something I'm checking out. Um,
1: and how important is new music and, and commissioning compositions to you?
0: I mean, for the duo, it's huge because <laughs> we got to expand our repertoire, and um but with any other ensemb- I mean I play with a lot of new music ensembles it's it's important because you know we have to keep keep the engine going right um we can't just sort of lay back on what we what we have right and i think it's extremely interesting like we get totally new colors and experiences and and i mean i'm i'm sort of looking forward to getting a bit older and seeing where some of these pieces end up sort of in the the gamut of of repertoire um, that's available. But uh,
1: And do you find that the audience is more receptive to new music? I like I'm not sure but if you
0: prompt it. I mean you can't again you can't just go out there and just play it. You have to you have to give them right something. But I think that's with any piece. But I find sometimes we just we're like here's here's a new thing. <laughs> I don't know why we do that. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me.
1: So this is an exciting time for you with the new album coming. For for people who want to know more about the new album, where can they find out information about it? Uh,
0: You can find out more information at the the website of the duo, which is the duo is called VC2 or VC2 Cello Duo. And our website is www.vc2celloduo.com. And it'll be, once we figure out how to put it on the internet, it'll be on, on, you know, all those, all those things. It'll be on, on the iTunes and the Spotify and we'll, we'll figure it out.
1: So at this point, is that your main focus or how many other projects are you working with?
0: Uh, Right now, the duo, we're kind of looking at a new project that'll involve uh, dance as well. That's one of the things that we're.
1: So you'll be dancing with the cello?
0: We will not be dancing with the cellos. Although we do have these, um, they're called, they're, they were invented by Mike Block. They're called block straps and they allow you to actually strap the instrument to yourself <laughs> so that you can stand and walk and play. And Have you done that? Oh, we tried. It's impossible. <laughs> he's, I would imagine he's it very would we good difficult. at it, but uh-huh. uh, it, it's like, well, now you have a, you know, you're sitting and you play the cello, but now when you stand up, you have this moving target <laughs> sort of thing. So bowing, everything, you almost have to relearn how to play the instrument or at least that's how I felt right um I guess yeah there's a there's a video of of us attempting it somewhere on our Instagram um (laughs) from many years ago but yeah we bought them we tried it didn't quite work out so we'll 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 revisit it I'm sure someday but because we have them but uh (laughs) but musically
1: what else are you working on
0: musically I mean I'm preparing sort of for the upcoming season like in classical music like the big season sort of runs September to June um kind of just like hockey. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I've got to start learning some operas um, for, the, for the winter because uh, some of these are pretty extensive works. Um, like I've had the experience of, of doing some of Wagner's Ring Cycle, which some of these operas last you know five hours. And so it, it takes quite a lot of time to learn that. So, so do you, you're playing with the Canadian Opera with, Company? This is with the Canadian Opera Company. I've got a couple um, a couple operas I've been hired for this season. So I'll start learning those, um, my own personal practice. I'm, I'm just trying to, to learn, yeah, more, more improvising, uh, practicing a lot more scales. Now that, now that I've finished my doctorate, I feel like I have a little bit less of a split personality of, of, you know, having to write this giant paper. So it's going to allow me to actually do some real practicing, um, where instead of, at times, what would happen is sort of just scrambling to learn things. So I'm I'm trying to take my time to learn to learn the learn some of the music. But in terms of other big projects, I, I think we're kind of just in the early planning stages now that this this big one is has finished off.
1: Okay, so the other thing I want to ask you is like you have this prairie tour coming up in 2019. That's right. Um, does everything work that way? Because I know oftentimes in classical music things are booked way ahead of schedule or way ahead. So like, is it, would it be easy for you to get a gig in September or like, how does that work in terms of it getting It depends, Yeah. It
0: depends on what the gigs are. I mean, a lot of the things we do are, are hired, you know, a few months in advance. It, it's just, you know, you need to have the time to let the audience know what's happening. Right. It's, it's never really that last minute. Um, like having said, we do a lot of, house concerts through this uh online platform or organization i'm not quite sure what to call it it's called artery and um some of those we we just schedule um you know a few weeks ahead and we're still able to sell those out i mean they're they're pretty small
1: concerts tell me what you get out of house concerts
0: uh i mean you get with, with artery it we really like it because we get audiences that we've never seen before like a lot of people in the city that they're complete strangers right? and you get a packed room uh, full of very enthusiastic people and, and just a really great performing atmosphere. And they're really right in the action. Like <laughs> the last one we did was at a recording studio in, in town. Uh, I think it's called desert fish recording studios. And uh, there was literally a person like two feet from me. <laughs> um, and I actually had to say, well, you, you might want to like, they're just so into it. Um, but you have to actually say like you might want to move back a little bit, just not just because it'll be maybe a little loud, but also my bow might hit you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh but it must be neat happened. to play
1: to people who don't usually listen to classical music.
0: Yeah, because I mean, on this platform too, they they, they kind of have everything. Like classical music is like very low on their radar. They do a lot more folk, or even like they have dance, they have live painting and things like that. It's sort of all this all this stuff book like people doing readings from books that they've written right like the events are so varied um and so yeah you get this very diverse audience of people who have no idea really what they're about to see but they are totally into it um which yeah i mean there's no like perfect audience but i mean we we like that one and but we don't also we don't dislike um
1: so I think it's really cool. Like I think it's a really neat time in your life um, that you know this project's starting up, and they've got some good response from it, and hopefully there'll be a lot more opportunities for people to see it. Yeah, hope so. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks it. for having me. This is
0: super fun. <laughs> <laughs>